0: I'm Jeff Jarvis from the Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York and I've made a short series of videos talking to the experts in this crisis in the hopes of getting journalists to go to expertise. Uh, In the last war in journalism we were dealing with disinformation and our best weapon was to not amplify disinformation. Now our best war in this war I think in this crisis Uh, It's a war against ignorance, sometimes innocent and just misinformed ignorance. And our best weapon in that is expertise. So I wanted to talk to some of the experts in this crisis and find out how we as journalists should be interacting with them. Today, I am delighted that I have Dr. Emma Hodcroft, who's one of the first experts that I connected to on Twitter because she's doing brilliant work you'll hear about in a second, but also is excellent at explaining things to us, the ignorant, uh, in the public. And it's fascinating to also watch her interact with her fellow scientists. So, Dr. Hotcroft, thank you so much for being here. And if we could start, tell me what is your expertise and why should journalists be coming to you?
1: So first, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's an honor to be part of your series. Um, So my expertise is what I call molecular phylogenetics. So what this means in short is that we take the genetic material out of the virus and we look for tiny changes in that genetic material. These are mutations, but it's important to note that these mutations are not what we think of in like movies where, oh no, the virus is mutated and everyone is going to die. These are actually more like typos. So the virus copies itself many, many times when it infects someone, and inevitably it will make a tiny mistake. But just like if I sent you a document with a couple of typos, you could probably still read it. And it's the same for the virus. Most of these mutations don't change the virus at all, but they let us see these tiny differences between the viruses that lets us track. So if we see two viruses with the same mutation, we know they must have come from an ancestor that had that mutation. And we can make, if you like, a virus family tree that shows us how all the different samples are related. And using that, we can actually see how the virus is traveling around the world through time and also between between and within different countries. So the expertise that I can speak to best is about sequencing, what we can learn from genetic sequences, and how we have to be careful interpreting that.
0: And you're particularly working on the Next Strain project. Can you talk about what it's done and how many sequences you've managed to compile there and what you're learning from that?
1: Yes, so Nextrain has gotten a lot of attention in the last few months, and we're really happy to have something that's been so helpful to so many people. At Nextrain, we do exactly what I just said. We started doing it with flu, and we expanded out to many different pathogens, including Ebola and Zika. And we pivoted really quickly in January to also have a run that looks at the new coronavirus. And so what we do is... Thanks to the work of many scientists around the world who do the work of sequencing these viruses, and then they make those available publicly, which is really key, because then researchers like us can download them and use them for our research, as well as many others or other people around the world use them. And we put these into NextStrain, where we can draw these big families family trees of the viruses. And then we can kind of put them on the map and draw lines about where the virus might have moved between different countries. And so at the moment, we actually have over 5,000 virus sequences, which is really incredible. We've never had this many sequences of a new virus so quickly after the virus has, has been discovered. And it's really a testament to how amazingly well scientists have done in this epidemic at working together. It's been incredibly heartening to see.
0: And so, for example, what are you seeing about the geographic uh, lineage of the virus that hits various parts of the United States? Since we're American, I'll I'll, uh, be uh, self-centered and ask that.
1: Yeah. So we we can look at a couple of different levels at, at kind of the geographic revolu- resolution of what we can see for the virus. And for example, with the United States, one thing that we can see that has been in the media a little bit in the last few weeks is that we can see that there have been multiple introductions to the US. So there's not one single country or, or place, either China or Europe, that can have can be blamed for introducing the virus to the US. It's probably been introduced multiple times. And we see this with pretty much every country that we have a substantial number of sequences with. Um, This virus has really traveled the globe probably a few times by now. It's hard to overstate how quickly this virus spreads. And so every country has just about given it to every other country at this point. It's also important to note, though, that within country uh, spread has been really critical. So we have a paper coming out very soon in Cell where we actually looked at this and looked at how much we can estimate from the genome sequences, how, how important international versus domestic spread was in the U.S. And domestic spread was really key here. It's unlikely that the travel bands that were introduced made much of a difference because the virus was already here and spreading in the U.S. at that point. And it was really time to turn inward and look at what we could do to stop Spread locally.
0: Uh, I should add, what's the institution you're associated with and where are you physically?
1: Um, So I'm associated with the University of Basel here in Basel, Switzerland.
0: So you're thus seeing media coverage. I mean, we can see everything on the internet anyway, but you're seeing, I think, the sense in Switzerland and the sense in Europe versus media coverage in the US. Uh, I'd like you to be a media critic for a moment and and look at what you think we in journalism uh, as a whole. Have um, let's start with the bad news. Have gotten gotten wrong, done badly.
1: Yeah. So I've I've had I I've, I certainly have never had as much um, contact with the media as I have in the last few <laughs> months. It's been a really interesting interesting experience, and in general a really good one. But I have had a, a couple of disappointing um, experiences, mostly with um, well, on a personal level, kind of ill prepared. Journalism, which um, where people as, as you yourself focus on people coming to me with the wrong types of questions for my expertise and really trying to get answers to questions that I am not best placed to answer. But on a more general scale, I've also been a little bit disappointed in um, some of the coverage surrounding in particular papers and scientific studies that are not very well founded. Um, In recent week or so, we've had, for example, this PNAS paper that has been picked up by a lot of media. Now, I think this is a hard one because PNAS is genuinely a reputable journal. So it's very tempting for journalists to cover this because in general, papers in PNES are quite reputable. This one is an exception to that rule. And unfortunately, it's spread a lot of misinformation about the virus. Um, And I'm a little disappointed that I haven't actually had much contact with the media at all about clearing this up.
0: What was the subject of the paper?
1: So this paper was um, some people who have looked at the genetics of the virus, which is exactly, of course, my area of expertise. And they've tried to do something similar to what we do, but with quite a different method that's really not as well respected and is not used by anyone who's really actively working in this field right now. Then they've gone a little bit further and drawn some conclusions from that output, which are quite questionable. So they've divided the virus into different groups, three different groups, A, B, and C, And they've made implications that these groups are functionally different, that the virus is behaving differently in these groups. And we don't actually see any signs of this at all with our analyses or many other people who are analyzing the same data. The virus is actually really similar at this point. If you take the two most different samples, they're only different by about 40 differences and that's in a genome of over 29,000 bases. So 40 over 29,000 is actually really, really similar. And on average, they're even more similar than that, more like 10 or 15, 20 20 differences between two strains if you pick them at random. And we don't see any indications that any of these changes have changed how the virus behaves or how it infects people. So trying to say that these, these different groups, these ABC are different is in itself misleading. Unfortunately, the authors have then gone a step further and been in the media making some associations with ethnic groups and adaptation and this kind of thing, which is really troubling on many, many levels. But again, we have absolutely no evidence that this is the case. And we wouldn't expect it to be this early in the virus's uh, evolution where it's just come into humans.
0: So I, I want to come back a little later to the to the, the fascinating. Um, open information ecosystem that's developing around medicine. I'm going to come back to that, but let's just stay on this case for one second. Mm-hmm. Um, how should we operate? So when we see something like that uh, as, as reporters and um, don't understand the dynamics well enough, yes. uh, what should we do on our end? And what are you doing on, on your end? I mean, Are you going on Twitter in that case of that paper and disagreeing so that we can find you and say that there is a different view? Uh, how, how should these two worlds interact?
1: Yes, so there's quite a few people actually that have been on Twitter about this. Um, I don't think it would have been too hard to find to find a few of us. I do think this really underscores the importance of when covering a paper to reach out to other scientists that are not involved in the paper and get an idea how is this being received by the wider scientific community? Because in this case, I really think if you'd reached out to any number of people who work at all with sequences of phylogenetics, you would have realized very quickly that the angle for this paper is one qu- quite critical because most scientists in the field disagree absolutely. In, unfortunately, a lot of the, the journalism I saw surrounding this paper only talked to the authors. And of course, they're never going to give you the critical side of their paper. That's that's not their job. But I haven't really seen any that reached out to the rest of the community. In this case, I don't think it would have been too hard to find someone to, um, on Twitter. There's a lot of people being active right now or to find someone who could have pointed you in the direction of right. of, one of us who works on genetic sequences. One of the things that I've heard in response from, from at least one journalist was that they reached out, um, but they didn't get an answer in time. I know that this epidemic is moving really fast, um, On the other hand, though, I think that we all have a responsibility right now in this pandemic to make sure that the information we're putting out there is correct, because so much of it goes on to fuel disinformation, which is harmful and causes panic and causes people to disregard health and government advice. So if it takes an extra 24 hours to make a more accurate piece, I really think that has to be where we lie. We have to put good information out there so that we aren't hurting people and stopping the most effective controls from being in place.
0: So I said at the beginning of our chat that I'm more concerned now with amplifying expertise than worrying about disinformation, though I don't mean to diminish the power of that and the danger of that. So because you work in such a complex and technical area that most of us don't understand, uh, I suspect you're seeing some, whether it's um, uh, innocent, well-meaning misinformation or it's disinformation. Uh, out there, what are some of the frustrations that you see in general, besides that paper, but just in general presumption in media that you wish you could correct?
1: So I I definitely think that working in phylogenetics and working with something as beautiful as Nextstrain does open us up to a little bit of uh, of, of honest mistakes. So I like to say that Nextstrain and phylogenetics is is beautifully dangerous because then the graphics on Nextstrain we've designed them to be very attractive and very interactive and to encourage you to play and explore the data. And I would never take that back. I think this is a huge asset of ours. However, on the other hand, Uh, When you click around and you start looking at this, for example, you'll very easily find instances where a sequence from Germany and a sequence from Italy connect to each other. And it's really tempting to find a story in that to say, wow, this Germany must have gone to Italy and infected someone or the other way around. But of course, It's really, really important to keep in mind that we have 5,000 sequences and that's amazing, but that's an absolute drop in the bucket compared to the number of cases worldwide. We have many, many more people who haven't been sampled than that have been sampled. So it's actually quite rare if two sequences have a direct connection. There's probably a lot of people in between and we don't know how those people might have traveled or where they might have been. So it's really actually quite difficult for us to draw these really detailed connections. But this is a really easy thing people who are exploring our tree to fall into. And I've seen quite a few instances where people misinterpret this and it is somewhat because it is so accessible and so beautiful that these stories are so tempting, but unfortunately they're often also really wrong.
0: Um, what stories are we missing? Uh, what what do, you, do you wish that journalists would, would, would grab onto and cover?
1: So I think one hole that I've that I've noticed, or or at least from the feedback I've received, that might be there, I'm not having read every journal journalism article in okay. the last. Is, is a little bit more of the why so my most popular Twitter threads for example have been the first one was how you know that you shouldn't panic but you should prepare and this is why we're saying to go to the shop and get a few extra groceries not because we think all the food will disappear but because we want to alleviate pressure on the supply chain and then I had another popular one where I talked about why are scientists worried when we see that the first cases in a country that are detected are deaths and then more recently I've had ones talking about why why the CFR might be different in different countries and how we measure this and why um, excess mortality is a good way of looking at the deaths caused by coronavirus. And I think often people, they, they get the facts, they get the numbers, but they may not understand why this is important. And I actually think that that's a really critical role that journalism can fill. And I'm certainly not saying that it's not being filled at all. But I think the fact that my Twitter threads get that much attention is because people are feeling like they don't have it from somewhere else. And I think it would be great if there could be a few more articles maybe that are aimed at not just the facts, but why they matter and how we can interpret them as lay people.
0: So as I said at the start, I very much admire your Twitter threads, and, and I put together a list of 500-some epidemiologists, virologists, and so on, so that we could find the experts. And it was not hard on Twitter. And some really stand out uh, in, in their ability to explain, and mm-hmm. you are one of those. You, you, you obviously take the care and effort. Uh, it matters to you to try to explain things to the public. And, and I imagine you have the kind of job where you went to a cocktail party and no one, after five minutes, could figure out what the hell you d- actually do right? Um, So now you're in this position. What's your philosophy of your use of social media? What do you get out of it? What do you try to accomplish? Uh, What do you worry about? Any of that?
1: Yeah. So so this has been interesting because this was certainly something that has happened suddenly. So I, I have an interesting benchmark in that I went to America and visited my mother in January, and I was tweeting about a paper that we had just um, just put on preprint at the time, and I remember showing off to my mother. Look, I have 800 Twitter followers. <laughs> so this, I mean, I interestingly, I have that weird benchmark of just a few months ago, and now I have over 17,000 Twitter followers. So it's been a pretty astronomical rise in popularity that has changed my approach to to Twitter, understandably. Um, I'm, I think I'm quite lucky. I have a bit of a natural gift for ex, for explaining things. And I think that that has, has served me really well in the past few weeks. And it's one of the reasons why I've chosen to try and stay quite quite active in the media and quite active on social media is because I feel like this is something that comes a little easier to me. I know all scientists are really struggling for time right now, but I feel like this is something that I can do to help people. And that's, that's very important to me that If there's something I can do, it's something I should do in a time like this. But I have had to evaluate kind of how how I act and what I'm going to put and what I'm going to like or retweet on social media um, and be a little bit more careful than than I might have been, you know, four or five months ago. Mostly, though, my experience has been really good, actually. And part of this is because at the very beginning, I decided that I wasn't going to respond to people who were rude, to people who were trying to argue with me, or to people who were spreading conspiracies and misinformation. I also decided really early on that I was going to do my best to be polite and upbeat, and to give people the benefit of the doubt. Because I recognize that at this time, a lot of people are very worried and that people might be saying things in a way that, is because of their anxiety rather than actively trying to be rude or they're asking an honest question, but maybe not with the right wording. And actually what I've found is that my experience has been really good with this. Sometimes it's really hard because someone says something mean to you and you have the perfect comeback. (laughs) What I've actually found is if you say nothing, they just disappear in the timeline and nobody ever responds to them and you can move on with your life. You don't have to hang on to it. And I've also found that When I do answer someone who maybe they're being a little rude, but I've decided that I'm going to treat this like an honest question, if you're polite, you often get a really good response in return. And that has been really encouraging and and kind of heartwarming, and I'm glad that I've been able to help people that way. So I think it's been really good that I've had some guidelines in what I've done, and I feel like I've been very lucky that they've worked out well for me so far.
0: And is your institution um, happy to have you out there? Uh, Some institutions get nervous in this world, especially when they're not accustomed to social media. Uh, Did you have to do any internal sales? No,
1: I haven't actually. Um, So the University of Basel has actually been really incredible. They've been so supportive of me and they've really helped me out. For example, when journalists um, stopped being able to send photographers out, Uh, The University of Basel um, arranged a photographer for me to get some headshots because all I had was selfies. (laughs) (laughs) And they arranged a socially distant photo shoot so that I can now send newspapers, photos of me that aren't kind of. (laughs) um, And and, and they've really helped with coordinating everything. I, I can't say enough. And they have been completely supportive of my presence on social media. And I think they see the value of good communication right now. So I have nothing but good things to say about the University of Basel.
0: Um, and they, I'll, I'll thank them too. Then, um, let's go back to, to the discussion that you and I ended up in, uh, and I've ended up with others on excess mortality. Uh, I, it's, it's fairly apparent that we don't have all the data we need and the data we're mm-hmm. using oftentimes is, is, is necessarily incomplete. And one of those obvious data points is how many people have died from the disease. Mm-hmm. And some weeks ago, it just occurred to me as an amateur that knowing the Delta in deaths, now versus the average, a rolling average over prior years would give us a better picture. I try to suggest this to some reporters and editors. I got nowhere. Um, But then you came on with a a, um, more authoritative expression of this and, and, and more of the why we need this. Do me a favor and kind of explain your thinking about that notion of what is excess mortality and why it's important to measure that and how we can measure that.
1: Yeah. So excess mortality is actually a fairly simple concept. It's the idea of how many people have died at this time this year, and how does that compare to previous years and to make sure that we don't have any too much kind of, um, you know, one-off comparisons, we often take an average. So for example, we might look at the last 10 years average the number of deaths over the course of a year and then compare how is this year compared to those years. In a normal year, we would expect that there's not much variation from year to year. So for example, we usually see a bit of a spike in the winter because of deaths due to flu, for example. So we'll see variations between the seasons. But from year to year, those stay pretty much the same. We might have a little bit less of a flu season or a bit more of a flu season, but they stay within some pretty normal bounds. So this gives us a very good baseline for how many people would normally be dying this time of the year. We can then put on how many people have died this year right now from any cause. If we're just looking at normal causes of death, like the flu, car accidents, this kind of thing, we would expect this year to sit very well between all those other years. What we actually see is a really big spike in the countries where we have this data. We don't really think that anything else has changed. There are no other unexpected wars or disasters or anything like this happening in westernized countries or really anywhere in the world that wasn't going on a few months ago. Um, So this spike is most likely due to coronavirus. Now there is some roughness to this estimate because It might not be entirely due to coronavirus, but the magnitude of the difference, if it's really large, that does tell you that probably a lot of it is either due to coronavirus directly or deaths that might be being caused by not having a health system able to cope with normal causes of death. So for example, in Italy, during the peak of their crisis, someone with a heart attack might have struggled to get an ambulance or see a doctor as quickly as normal because they were so overwhelmed by coronavirus patients. There's also probably some deaths in there from people who've avoided going to the hospital because of fears of coronavirus. So people who haven't sought out medical attention as quickly as they might otherwise have. On the other hand, we might be seeing fewer deaths from car accidents because people aren't out commuting. But we kind of expect that these are going to be smaller changes in the data, and when we see really big peaks like the one we're seeing right now in the countries where we have the data, we do think this is because of coronavirus. The advantage this has over the official coronavirus death statistics is that every country is going to measure a death of coronavirus slightly differently. Um, so for example, in the UK, there's been some criticism recently that only people who've died in hospitals are going to get counted as coronavirus deaths. Of course, there are plenty of people who will die of coronavirus, particularly in care homes. and you know, they're still dying of coronavirus. In other places, there might be a limit on tests. So in Italy, at the peak of the epidemic, for example, it's unlikely that they were even capable of testing everyone who died. And once they're dead, they're not really a priority. If you only have so many tests to give out, you want to give it to people who are alive so you can treat them better. But that also means that you might be missing those people being classified as coronavirus deaths. When we look at just all cause, all cause mortality and compare that to previous years, we get around any of these differences in what is a coronavirus death and can just see that there's a really big peak right now that's most likely due to coronavirus.
0: And what strikes me is this is a, an area where maybe journalists could help. Uh, at the Financial Times, uh, John uh, Byrne Murdoch has been doing a great job with his, with his graphics uh, yes. of this. And, and when you had contact with him, cause he, so he's trying to get good data, better data out of countries around the world to be able to do this. And so the fact that he cares uh, means that maybe journalists could be helpful in eking out those numbers. Are there any other data points that you think are critical where journalists uh, could or could not help, but that you feel are necessary and we're not getting good enough data?
1: I mean, I actually think that in general, journalists have done a really good job. I mean, like the Financial Times Numbers website, that's really incredible and it's really useful. And the fact that they've made this publicly available, so it's not part of their paid content, is also really critical because it means that more people can make use of it. I am pretty excited about the excess mortality. It's not going to be easy to get for every country because not every country makes it very easable easy to get a hold of particularly past mortality data. And there's also often a lag. So a lot of countries aren't reporting their mortality data Um, until about two weeks after the date. So for some countries we might have to wait a while until we really see what's going on. But I still think this is a really valuable exercise to look at and it will show us, it will also give us an idea of how um, the epidemic has grown in different countries, maybe even before coronavirus testing was taking place or before people recognized that it was even in that country. And it'll be very interesting to compare how those peaks start rising from country to country over time.
0: now, I want to go back to this, this question of the open uh, uh, information ecosystem we have now. Uh, I talked to uh, Angela Rasmussen mm-hmm. at Columbia, and she said that in the prior epidemic she's dealt with, she didn't have the atmosphere of the preprint uh, world of papers being out there. And clearly, as you, as you already mentioned, there could be danger with preprints. There's one notorious one about hydroxychloroquine that went out into Twitter and into Trump's brain and out his mouth. And... and um, but, but everyone I've asked is celebrating the existence of the preprints, that is to say the speed that now exists for scientists to share information with each other. Um, and, and as a young scientist yourself, coming through different presumptions about how the information ecosystem works, I'm curious for your perspective on um, the freedom and, and speed and flow of information that is now occurring, especially in this crisis.
1: Yeah, so I am also another voice in favor of the pre-printing and the the open sharing of science. Um, I've been an advocate of this since before this pandemic. I think that open data, open science, and open papers make for better science because it means that your information is out there sooner for other scientists to take advantage of, but also to critique. And this is important. This is what science is one big feedback loop. And when you can put your work out there and someone can say, hey, this is great, but have you considered this or what about this? That's the all the sooner that you can respond to this, You know, maybe before it's even published so that you can have a better publication out of it. Um, we do of course have trouble because preprints are not reviewed by, by their very nature. And so it does mean that we're going to get some bad papers out there. But I think a really good point that a lot of scientists have made is that the role of preprints has actually worked really well here. We had bad preprints, and they were immediately called out and put down very publicly. We've also had some really great preprints. Unfortunately, they don't, sometimes they don't make as many headlines, (laughs) but they've been, you know, making big differences in the scientific community. And at a time right now, information flow is one of our biggest tools in fighting the epidemic. The faster that we can all share what's happening in different countries, what works, what doesn't, what the latest research says, the faster this can be put into policy that will save lives. And I'm really just really glad that people are recognizing this and that people are willing to work towards this for a greater good. And I have to say in academia, our our pressure is is a little bit in the opposite direction. We are our worth is measured in our publications and uh, there can be some pressure that it's better to wait and do a big publication even if that takes longer rather than putting that information out there now and this is of course what we use to get jobs and get grants and it does take some encouraging to get people to feel like It is worth it, and it is not going to hurt their career, or if it is, it's it's still worth it for the greater good to put this information out there sooner. But it it is a bit of a fight, given the current incentive system that we have in academia. But I'm so, so, so happy that so many academics have embraced this right now to help fight against this virus.
0: What is your professional status at this point? Are you a postdoc?
1: Yes, I'm a postdoc, and my contract formally ends in November. So I
0: feel... (laughs) So so um, that's interesting, how, how, how does this, in, in your, in your uh, I, so when I started the first three interviews, someone said, well, get someone young. And I said, I'm trying to get uh, uh, Dr. Remi-Hotcraft, so I, uh, uh, younger than the others I've talked to. Um, but that does have a, a very different set of uh, incentives and worries as to where you are in your career versus others. Uh, I'm guessing this is gonna be helpful to you. In fact, In fact, th- my kind of last question here is, if you don't mind being a little bit personal here about what it must be like to be in this obscure field to to my view. And suddenly you're in the center of all of this. On the one hand, it has to be terribly fascinating and exciting. On the other hand, sobering. Um, And on the other hand, you've got a career to worry about as you go forward. How do you just kind of have a out of body experience, seeing your own (laughs) life and career in the midst of this maelstrom?
1: Yeah, so you're right. It's been a really interesting experience because in general, people are not super interested in molecular phylogenetics until now. Um, but I'm, I'm really hopeful because I think that actually, if, if, if I may for a moment, I actually think we're at a very interesting point in what we're going to be able to do with, with for example, viral genetics sequencing is now becoming more affordable and it's much easier and faster for people to do before i worked on coronavirus i worked on a virus called enteravirus t68 which is exactly the level of interest that most people had in my field beforehand but this is actually a really important virus that has caused paralysis in young children in the last few years it comes back every two years in western countries which in itself is very interesting and it seems to be a little bit inverse of coronavirus in that it affects young children, and it seems like adults might actually carry it, but kind of without symptoms, which is kind of the opposite way of what we think of the new coronavirus. But the point of this is to say that what I've learned about enteravirus and how it moves through the world is very informative for working with things like coronavirus. And I actually think that we're on the edge of where we're going to be able to start monitoring more of these boring viruses, the common colds and these kinds of things, but they come back every year and they're really common. So they're an amazing tool that we could be using to learn about viruses in general, how they move, how they move between different populations, why they come back every winter or every two winters. And I'm really hoping that this will fuel funding and interest for studying these more common viruses over long time periods so that when the next pandemic comes, we really have much better information under our belt for understanding viruses in general, how immunity works, how long it lasts, and all of this is critical when it comes to fighting a pandemic, but we can't do that virus, that in, that research fast enough if a, if a new virus has just arrived. Um, as a young researcher, I would definitely say this has been interesting. Um, I have not done a lot of the, again, it's a little bit personal, but I have not done a lot of the things that I had been planning to do this spring as far as apply for jobs, apply for grants, and kind of figure out what I'm doing after November. And to some extent I've I've made peace with this now, but at the beginning of this outbreak, this was really stressful because it feels like if you can contribute during an epidemic, that is what you should be doing. And I think that what I've done is important. And I feel like personally for me, I couldn't have made a different choice morally, but it is also difficult to, in the quiet moments, think about, okay, I've helped the world today will I have a job in November? (laughs) It's not the kind of pressure that helps you sleep during an otherwise stressful time. I do think in the long run, I'm hoping that this will have helped in a career sense, I mean, we've applied for grants to continue studying coronavirus, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get one of these, and that I'll be able to continue both this work and my previous work with enterovirus and other viruses. And I do hope that this is a bit of a, a bit of a, an encouragement for funding agencies and people in general to take note and hopefully fund more virus research, which I would of course be more than happy to contribute my expertise to, if possible, in the future. Um, so it's, it's been an interesting experience, but I think in general, at times like these, you have to put forward what's most important, and that's kind of the global good. And have faith that the world that we live in, it will come out good in the end.
0: Well, and on that note, I, I've, I've kind of buried myself in my Twitter list of, of experts watching doctors communicate with each other and with the public, <clears throat> and it is the one thing that gives me hope, science. And so I'm grateful for the work you do and your colleagues do, because the fact that you have many years ahead of trying to work on these uh, difficult puzzles uh, gives me hope. And so thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. I'm, I'm very grateful.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's been wonderful to speak to you.